0: We pray that you would humble our hearts. Some of us here this morning feel ourselves the victims, the victim of some injustice, like Esau was the victim of his brother's trickery. And some of us have been the perpetrator of some injustice. And yet in both cases, Lord, humble our hearts that we might see that we are not without sin and might be able to pray that prayer Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. A number of you, I'm sure, have taken road trips over the summer, some long, some short. Whenever you go on a road trip, you prepare, right? You've got to get all the stuff that you need. You don't want to get stuck on the way. You don't want to get a, you know, a, a tire blown out or something like that that's going to prevent you from getting to your destination, so you Prepare for this journey. You prepare for the trip that you're going to take. I remember in college I was taking that epic trip home, that first trip home from uh, college, South Carolina to Dallas, 15 hours, and I had a brilliant idea. What do you need on a 15-hour trip? You need caffeine, lots and lots of caffeine. But the problem is Diet Coke's, or at that time it was Coke's. Cokes get cold and you need to keep, you get warm and you need to keep them cold. So I got this great idea. I would line them up on the window shield and turn on, crank up the AC so that they're constantly getting like a cool blast of air, right? Worked beautifully, made it all the way back uh, to Dallas. Forgot a couple on the windowsill and they exploded, covering my car in a film of sugary goodness that uh, existed till the day I sold it. Never got it fully clean. You need to prepare for a trip, and you need to prepare intelligently, right? You need to prepare smartly. You need to do the things that you need to do to go on these trips. And we as Christians are on a road trip. We're on a journey. In fact, one of the favorite metaphors that the Bible uses to talk about the Christian life is a journey. It's woven into the fabric of particularly Hebrews. You're on a journey from Egypt to the Promised Land, and what you need in order to make it to your destination is this thing called perseverance. You need to keep going. It's going to get tough. There's going to be temptations and trials on the way. There's going to be suffering that is sometimes your fault and sometimes not. There's going to be burden that you're going to have to bear, and your goal in that time is to, by faith, continue on, press forward, To promised land. You're on a journey and you need the appropriate equipment to keep you going to persevere to the end. And one of the most important components in the Christian life for that task, the task of perseverance, is repentance, penitent prayers. Some don't make it. Esau didn't make it. A whole generation of Israel didn't make it. Why? They found no chance to repent. So we want to reflect on this this morning the important role that repentance has in the Christian life, lest we forsake it and think, you know, my prayers are pretty good. I pray. For all my friends, I pray for my own needs. I pray for the needs of others. I'm lifting up the body. I... But if you're not praying penitent prayers, then you are losing a key weapon in this in your arsenal that will help you persevere to the end. You are losing that thing that you need when you are lame, lest your joint, l- 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 lest uh, your uh, uh, feet be put out of joint, but rather healed. You are losing that thing that heals the wounds that are inflicted as you travel you need to learn how to pray penitent prayers we're going to look first at the causes of impenitence what blocks our path what blocks us from praying penitent prayers the causes of impenitence the consequences of impenitence and finally we will look at the cure for impenitence or if you prefer the journey metaphor what slows us down on the journey what gets us stuck in the end and finally what keeps us moving first then the causes of impenitence only the penitent man will pass right so I need to know what causes that hardness of heart in which I stick in my heel and I say I am not going to forgive that person I'll forgive that person if they come to me first i 'll go to God with my sin if God does this first. What causes that attitude of impenitence, that, that anger, that pride where we stick our feet in the ground and say i 'm not worse than other people if they don 't have to repent if they don 't have to repent i don 't have to repent. Esau is a model, a negative model for us in this, and notice that the author of Hebrews picks out two uh, sins, two particular kinds of attitudes that block Esau's path, that slow him down on the journey. These the two flat tires in his quest to get from Egypt to promised land, he isolates too, and I, 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 they're just wonderful to reflect on. Uh, the first that he mentions is verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that, that is to say that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. You saw that in the Genesis passage that we read earlier. uh, The word bitterness, bitterness which dwells in Esau's heart was raised a couple of times. Bitterness destroys Christian lives. Bitterness here is described as a kind of plant, a root that grows once it's planted. It's a weed that can infect Best our hearts. It grows up in our hearts. It chokes out the good things that God has placed there. Grieves the Holy Spirit. Bitterness is a big deal and it's not something we often think of. You think of like barriers to the Christian life and maybe sexual immorality comes to mind and we'll talk about that next up. Maybe some of these kind of epic sins come to mind. These larger than life sins. The seven deadly sins that, that uh, would interfere with my ability to persevere to the end. Bitterness doesn't often make the list, and yet our author isolates it here as something particularly we need to think about as it relates to the Christian life patterned after, as we've seen, Esau. What happens to Esau? Well, Esau was wronged. In in both instances, Esau is something of the victim. In the first instance, he's a willing victim, right? He's being extorted by his brother. He's being exploited by his brother, but he steps right into it, and we're, we're not given a lot of uh, information about what might have, how hungry was Esau, how culpable should he be, but he is a willing participant in his own uh, undoing there. And then in the second instance, he's an unwilling victim, but he is the victim, And you can kind of see, you can appreciate Esau's side of the story. My brother, Jacob, is he well-named? Because he's a manipulator, he's a deceiver. And what happens is, and this is what happens in all bitterness, what happens is Esau latches on to this injustice, whether it was self-inflicted or inflicted by someone else, he latches on to this injustice and he lets it fester. He lets it take root. He lets it grow. And the problem becomes all he can see is other people's sin. All he can see is, well, is he named Jacob? Not, well, am I named Edom. Well, is he named Jacob? All he can see is Jacob's side, uh, Jacob's burden, Jacob's guilt. He cannot bring himself to analyze his life, ask about his decisions, ask about the mistakes he's made, peer into his own heart, his own sinful self, uh, his own sinful heart, which can, uh, consistently over the course of his life fails to exercise self control. He can't do that. He can't bring himself to do that. And one of the things that blocks his ability to do that is bitterness, his anger at other people. Is frustration with their sins, their errors, their injustices. This world is full of injustices. You are going to experience pain that you, call, that you bring upon to yours, on yourself and pain that others bring upon you without cause. You're going to experience pain, the pain of God's discipline, and also the pain of injustice. You're going to be falsely accused. You're going to be manipulated. You're going to be wronged. And in those instances, it's particularly hard to work yourself into a state of self reflection and repentance because all you can see is that other person's guilt. All you can see is yourself as victim rather than as culpable. Now, you may be innocent. You may be innocent of some particular wrong that you're accused of, but who among us can say we have not wronged in kind, that we have not sinned likewise, that we are not precisely in the position that the forgiven servant has, uh, is in? Remember the forgiven servant, the guy who's forgiven mountains of debt? And what does he do? Uh, he goes around and he turns to his fellow servant who owes him ten bucks, He's just been forgiven a million bucks. He goes to a servant who's been forgiven 10 bucks and demands it on penalty of great harm. Who of us among us,, you know, having experienced some injustice, injustice, haven't committed it? We cannot let bitterness blind us, root within us and cause division within ourselves and within the people of God. And notice how Hebrews puts it. Bitterness is a contagion. Okay? It's kind of like cancer in that it grows, but it's unlike cancer in that it spreads. Okay? Uh, because as our author goes on to say, this bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many are defiled. It's like the plague which spreads from person to person What happens when we are bitter with other people is that we seek ways in which to, to injure others, resulting in more bitterness. We spread our bitterness from one person to the next because we try to resolve the difficulties that we face by taking matters into our own hands. This is what Esau does. He plots his brother's death. We may not be so grand in our scheming, but nevertheless, this is what we do. We take it out on other people and it spreads and it divides the church and you need the church to help you to persevere to the end. If you're alone in the wilderness, you are in a dangerous situation. You need the body to help you, to sustain you as you pursue promised land. Bitterness may not be on the top of your list. Sins that can separate us from the body, but it is, pastorally speaking, a hugely damaging and dangerous sin. Do not let it fester. Root it out before it gets rooted. We could spend hours talking about the intricacies of bitterness, but we must move on. The other sin that hinders us, the other sin that blocks us, that has a particular kind of uh, way of destroying the Christian life is immorality, particularly sexual immorality. And you might be wondering, okay, I got the Esau story. I read through, and I saw Esau was did a lot of things wrong. Jacob did a lot of things wrong too. But Esau did a lot of things wrong, and I get that, but I didn't see any sexual immorality. Maybe it was him marrying the Canaanite woman that's mixed in here. Actually, what's happening is Esau becomes, in uh, Jewish tradition and in the teachings of uh, the Bible even, Esau becomes a kind of figurehead of the, the, the man who's controlled by his appetites. You think about that old Puritan word, one's appetites or one's lusts in the broader sense. That which Those passions of the flesh, which I'm not able to control but drive me into all sorts of iniquity. Esau, particularly the story where he cannot wait to eat this lentil stew. I don't know if you've ever felt that way about lentils. I have not. But he cannot wait to eat this lentil stew because he's so hungry. He's driven by his human, earthly appetites. Now, God gives us desires for a reason. He gives us hunger so that we can eat, and He delights when we're delighted with the food that is presented for us on the table. He delights in Thanksgiving over all of those things. But that... Those good things that God has given can become idols and drive us into all manner of idolatry. Uh, and being led by one's stomach and being uh, led by one's private parts are both that kind of sin. They drive. They drive us into all manner of iniquity. And so Esau is held up as the one as as one who. Exemplifies this kind of sin, the opposite of which is self control. He cannot bring himself, he cannot master his desires. Rather, they have mastery over him. What does it have to do with repentance? Again, what these kinds of sins do is they blind us to the need to repent, they blind us to our guilt. So that all that we can see is the object of our desire. All we can see is what's right in front of us. You know what's wrong with Esau? Esau is eschatologically short-sighted. Okay, go with me here. What Esau does is he has the promise that's held out for him in the future. We use the Christians use the word eschatology to kind of describe everything that God will accomplish When the great day of the Lord comes, these ultimate realities that we are headed for through the promises of God which he himself sustains, Esau, all he can see is the immediate desire right in front of him. He can't look beyond that to the joy set before him and endure the present injustice. He has to have the lentil stew. He has to have what his heart desires. He has to have that earthly desire that's right in front of him. And he's willing to give up anything to get it, including all of the promises, all of the vast benefits received through faithfulness to God. When we let our passions drive us, whatever those passions are, when we let them drive us, it takes us off the path, it takes us off the journey. We're no longer looking down the road. We're no longer looking at our destination. We're looking for our next meal. We're looking for our next fix. And we end up stuck somewhere in Arizona. We end up stuck on the journey, wandering in the wilderness. This is what happens to Esau and so many before him. Hebrews is a warning against that kind of thing. It's a warning and it comes to us as a warning because it wants us to understand the dire consequences of unrepentant hearts. Okay, so we've looked at the causes, these two sins, isolated us as, as some of the chief enemies that we have to face in the Christian life that block us, particularly block us from the way out. It's not just that they're sins that encumber us. They are, they are sins that encumber us, but they are particularly sins that block us from the path to repentance. They blind us to the need. For repentance because we're always concerned with someone else's guilt. Or we're always concerned with the, uh, feeding the passions of the flesh. And there are dire consequences. We need to do a little theology here. I know it's warm outside, but I'm going to ask you to perk up a little bit. We've got to do a little theology because one of the things that you can be thinking right now is, well, if I'm a Christian, I'm going to make it to the end. Because I know those Bible verses. I know Romans 8, right? Romans 8. Neither height nor depth, nor uh, angels nor demons, principalities nor powers, life nor death, nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. And of course, Romans 8 is true, and it's on, upon that blessed doctrine that we get, uh, that blessed passage that we get our wonderful doctrine that we hold dear in Protestant circles, the doctrine of the assurance of the saints, that you can be assured that if you belong to Jesus Christ, you will persevere to the end and be saved. Wonderful doctrine. We Americans, we like things simple and short. And so often we take this wonderful and complex doctrine and we truncate it into like a, a little bumper sticker slogan. Once saved, always saved. Uh, I was talking a number of years ago to another Christian. We were t- I don't know why. I'm not a kind of People magazine kind of person, but we were talking about some celebrity and uh, he was in you know, gross sin and uh, I think arrested or something like that. And uh, my friend said, well, it's a good thing that he's a Christian. It's like, well, well, wait a minute. The, I missed something here because I, I mean, we're talking like adultery. We're talking uh, uh, stealing stuff. We're talking drunken lewdness. I mean, there, there's a lot of sins here that don't match up with my idea of him being a Christian. And my friend said, well, uh, you know, a number of years ago, uh, he reported that he believed in Jesus So he's a Christian. Once saved, always saved. He was a Christian, so he is a Christian. We've got to do a little theology because we don't want that idea of once saved, always saved to short-circuit our ability to heed the warning. This warning isn't for other people. It's not for a specific subclass of Christian. It's for all of us. These are warnings that we all need to hear, right? Because it says... We need to all be pursuing holiness without which none will see the Lord. Does this mean we need to be perfect? No. Does this mean that there won't be moments of backsliding or long, perhaps long periods of rebellion? No, of course not. But it does mean we need to heed the warning and listen to what the text is calling us to. Once saved, always saved hides a couple of problems within it. One of the chief of which is this idea that faith is a one-time action that happened in the distant past. You know, maybe you're sharing your testimony, and maybe you've got the, most, the, the bestest, most climactic, dynamic story of your conversion experience. You know, you were drunk every night, and then you found Jesus, and you never drank again, and you uh, evangelized your whole college. And, what, you know, whatever the, the story is, and what what can tend to happen is you look back on that story and say that's how I know. That experience of faith back then is how I know that I'm a Christian now, which is how I know that I will be a Christian on ad infinitum into the future. I was saved, so I must be saved, and I will be saved. The problem is, is that's not how faith works. Faith isn't a ticket that you get and you put in your back pocket and you wait until the end and then you. Bring it out at the appropriate time, and St. Peter lets you in. Peter, right? St. Peter lets you into heaven. Faith isn't some snapshot action that took place in the past. It's a lifestyle that you live out over the course of your entire life, unto death. Hebrews, in the previous paragraph, says, You have suffered, but you have not yet suffered unto death. And that's when the Faith reaches its fruitful point. That's when the resurrection of the dead happens. As Revelation puts it, those who persevere to the end will be saved. Okay, well, this is heavy stuff. Did Tommy just take away that blessed doctrine of assurance? No, because assurance always goes together with perseverance. How do you know that you belong to Jesus Christ? you are presently turning to Him in faith. You are presently going to Him with your sins. You are presently speaking to Him about your trials. You are presently asking Him for help in your time of suffering. You are presently persevering with Him by faith as you wait for Him to return for the joy set before you, enduring every cross that comes your way. Assurance is the fruit of persevering faith. That's how we know we belong to the Lord. As our hymn puts it, our faith is a guard. It guards us until Christ returns. It's not an act. I mean, it is an act, but it's not just an act that we perform. It's a guard that protects us throughout the due course of our Christian life from every principality and power, from every angel or demon From life and death, it is there protecting us and sustaining us until Christ returns. What does all this have to do with repentance? What does this all have to do with penitent prayers? We need to remember, it is incumbent upon us to remember that this journey that we're on requires us to press on, requires us to move forward, requires us to be daily crucifying the desires of the flesh and pursuing holiness without which no one will see the Lord as uh, uh, Moody puts it in Harry Potter, uh, constant vigilance as we persevere to the end. And the life of constant vigilance is the life of faith. It's not picking ourselves up by our bootstraps. It's not making sure that we're perfect. It's not making sure that everybody knows that we're perfect. It is the life of in our imperfections, in our sins, in our trials, in our weaknesses, turning again to Christ and finding Him our help and our hope. Finding in Christ the One who will forgive us and the One who will hold out for us daily the promises that sustain us to the end. That's what faith is. It is constantly clinging to Christ in my guilt and in my pain and in my suffering and finding in Him my help and my hope. So what does Esau need to do? What do we need to do? Yes, we need to forsake bitterness. We need to root it out before it gets rooted in us. Yes, we need to be constantly vigilant against our immorality and our uh, particularly sexual immorality. We need to do all of those things, but we do those things by faith. And what we need to do is hold out before us Jesus Christ as our help and our hope. That's what will motivate you, even in the moment of injustice, even in the moment of crippling guilt, to pray a penitent prayer. If Jesus Christ is your help and your hope, that is, we cannot be eschatologically short-sighted. What we need to do is look past the circumstances. Your circumstances are real. Pain is not an illusion. Sin is not an illusion. Evil is not an illusion. These things are real, but we have to look beyond them to Christ, who is our help and our hope in the moment of pain and guilt. How do we do that? Christ is your hope. All of the promises are yours in Christ Jesus. All of them. All of the promises are yours in just, in Christ Jesus. And what that means is Christ Jesus has for you in heaven something fit, something meet, something that is what you need in this present circumstance. Maybe it is injustice. Then Jesus Christ is the one who brings justice. He is the one who brings judgment. He is the one who punishes the wicked, forgives sin, and rewards the righteous. Maybe maybe it's guilt. Then you find in Jesus Christ the one who has the authority given to Him by the Father to forgive sins. And you come with your penitent prayer. And you bow the knee and you say, Jesus, I am sinful, woe is me the sinner and you find in Christ forgiveness what do we do to keep going on this journey what do we do to cure our impenitence we need to focus on Christ and find in Christ, we need to find in Christ the solution to every present moment you are overwhelmed with the joy of some success or another, a new child graduating college overwhelmed by some reward or award that you've won, what do you do with that? You bring it to Christ and you you pray a penitent prayer. Lord, I do not deserve the good things that you have given to me. Praise be the name of the Lord. Thanks for these wonderful blessings. A sin that's overwhelming you that you cannot defeat, and maybe it's happened over and over and over again, and you are at that point where you're thinking, I've prayed a thousand penitent prayers over this sin, and it's still with me, and it's still encumbering me, and it's still eating me up. Penitent prayers don't work. Don't believe that lie. Don't cease to pray penitent prayers. The goal of the penitent prayer is not so that it works. It is acknowledgement that God is your King and your Judge and that you are at His mercy and seeking His mercy. We continually bring those penitent prayers to God. We don't cease. We don't look back on our sin and think, you know what, that wasn't a big deal. That's just who I am. I'm never going to get over that. God knows it. I know it. We just have this understanding, God and I, that I don't have to repent over that. Continue to bring your sins before the throne of God. It's hard to do, but we continue to do it because we know that God is merciful and He uses that grace that He gives us to knit us back together, to heal the joints that have been put out of place. Maybe it's some trial some moment of suffering. You didn't cause, you didn't ask for this. You didn't make, bring this upon yourself. You didn't make your own bed in this instance. It's an injustice. A trial that you are required to endure. Find in Jesus Christ a sympathetic High Priest who has been there before. Hebrews is very clear about this. He has experienced every form of suffering to the nth degree. He understands what it is to suffer, and yet He is without sin. So that means that He is not some aloof, distant Savior. He's not some uh, uh, powerful person you can't relate to. It means He gets it. He understands what you're going through. He has experienced injustice, false accusation, murderous threats, He's experienced all of those things yet without sin. So what we do in those moments is we pray a penitent prayer. Lord, forgive me for my sin. Perhaps I am blind here. Perhaps I don't see what I did wrong. Help me to see it. And then we go to our God for help. Maybe you didn't do anything wrong. But notice... If you've you've ever kind of pursued the Psalms of Lament, it's a great exercise to kind of take out the Psalms of Lament. You can Google that. It's in Wikipedia. Kind of take out the Psalms of Lament and read through them. In each case, the psalmist is saying, Lord, I don't deserve this. Lord, the enemies are around me. Enemies are causing me to suffer. This is an injustice. Act on my behalf. Solve this problem. And they always include at least a line of penitence. I'm not worthy of that. There's guilt I know not of. Forgive me. You see, in every instance that we face, there is an opportunity to go to Christ and say, forgive me my debts as we forgive our debtors. At every moment, there's a, a, a time to go to Christ and ask for help. And in every way in which we go to Christ it is appropriate to say Lord I am not worthy I do not deserve the good gifts that you have given to me I do not deserve for you to act on my behalf in this moment of suffering I do not deserve your forgiveness but I seek it be my God help me and Hebrews it warns us about the failure to do that but it also exhorts us. It says, as you do this, you are being brought closer and closer and closer to the end of your journey, to the promised land. Penitent prayers is the energy that keeps that Christian life going. It, it, is, it is fuel for you that helps you keep moving through every difficult time. Brothers and sisters, the payoff here is we have a sympathetic high priest Don't stop going to Him, and don't stop bringing to Him your repentance. You never grow out of that. You never grow out of, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You never grow out of, God, I have fallen, I am broken, I am humbled to the dust, show mercy. Hebrews then gives us this warning. If you think that you've grown out of that prayer, if you think that that was the sinner's prayer that you prayed when you were 10, 12, 25, keep praying that prayer. Never stop praying, God be merciful to me. And having prayed that prayer, go to Him with all of your other cares. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. For the joy set before you, bow the knee, repent, and find in Jesus Christ a sympathetic high priest. Let's pray.